What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. Episode two, episode part two with Carl Schmidt. This episode, we are uh, basically it's the second half of the first half that we recorded. The first half was one of the most entertaining conversations I've ever had. We're about we we ended up recording for about three three and a half hours. I think I think it was about three. But his story is just phenomenal. The second part, we get a little bit more personal on both sides, and I even let him ask me a few questions, which I don't love, but I think there might be some entertaining snippets as well. We get a little bit more unfiltered, and it just is hilarious. So, he's the man, Carl Schmidt. Tune in to this episode, part two of Wedgecast. How do you have a blueprint developed through your childhood that when you hit your 20s, you say, I'm going to freaking start a company? And that's that. Because <laughs> I couldn't, it, it, it'd be like you putting me in the pool and saying, now just take a deep breath. You know, like, just breathe in the water, son. You'll be fine. How in the hell did you get there? Um, so it started with, yeah, I mean, to, to qualify that, I'm not saying I've done any of this well, but this is just how, <laughs> this is, this is like where, 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 where it starts. So the very first taste for this whole idea of entrepreneurship, which I've sort of begun to sort of hate that word almost, but I, um, I literally was a chubby 15 year old, uh, between my eighth grade year going into my freshman year at high school. And my dad had a, 
we, we owned a, he owned a farm and he had a zero tone, zero turn lawnmower. And I had a, I was about to, by the time I turned 16, was going to have a SUV that I could drive. So I started thinking about like, okay, why don't I just go mow a few lawns? And I reached out to a couple of friends and a couple of friends, parents said, uh, yeah, you know, we'll pay you to do it. Come on by, you know, give it a whirl. So literally I had actually never mowed a lawn before. Uh, like <laughs> I, but, but for whatever reason, it was like, yeah, let's just give this thing a whirl. So I show up as a 16 year old. So it was like, that's that first summer was when I, when I really first started. Wait, so I sh- wait, man, I gotta say, I gotta say, I'm automatically thinking of that commercial where they're like, you wouldn't pay for a half-ass job and they show a lawn half cut. I'm sorry. I just, that's that's so I'm getting the part in the story where that's exactly what you're about to see. So the very first lawn that I mowed was an absolute disaster. Like it was I I like didn't know how to set the height of the deck. I didn't know how to I didn't even know to weed whack a lawn going up or down like just like all this stuff. So so I can tell the short snippet of like this whole story and make it sound super like heroic and how entrepreneur to start, but it was not that way at all, actually. (laughs) So I get done mowing this lawn and I know I just absolutely botch it. Like it was one of my, one of my buddies who I played football with, it was uh, her, uh, his mom. And she was like super nice, super friendly, like wouldn't be that, wouldn't be that honest about like stuff. Up up until that point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Until I knock on the door and I said, hey, so I don't know where this came from. This is one one skill that I do know that I have. I said, hey, uh, why don't we walk around the yard? Like I'd love some feedback. And she just politely said, "Um, I'll give you another go next week. But maybe let's uh, stay within the lines of our yard and maybe raise the deck, the deck height a little bit. And so that's like, that's when I realized like, all right, oh hell God. yeah. Hell yeah. I got past lawn number one. Like, like I kind of thought I hit a home run at that point. Like she paid me, like I didn't know what I was doing and that was that. So yeah. And, and that was kind of like the, like I then went door to door for like, as many so the i got i got a really cool sweet spot of like lawns that i would do so it was like this small little lake and every house around it was like a pretty pretty decent sized house that sat on like an acre lawn and so i literally just went door to door and knocked at everybody's lawn at everybody's door and i said yeah i'd like to mow your lawn you know that stuff like that and instantly people just kept saying yes 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 oh i know you mow this person i know you mow this person and just like over the next like three, four years, um, I like just the business really started to take off and then it got into, Hey, can you come spread mulch? And I had no idea what that even meant, but I went and rented a trailer (laughs) to deliver the mulch and figured out how to do it. And like, that's sort of the story of like, to answer the question of, you know, the blueprint of, uh, starting a company early on, dude, I have no idea, but it's always been ingrained in me uh, that like, I have a huge desire to offer value to people in something that I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's been something kind of long-term ingrained is like, I love like the validation wooing people. 
And the competitor, I guess, just like the drive, I would say in me is like, I want to figure out whatever that is, that's going to like, I guess, take, you know, whatever value that is. And I, I, that's not that cohesive of a thought. But I guess my point in that is like, that was the most fun process that I had was literally having somebody say, yes, uh, we want you to do this landscaping project, or we want you to clean our pool, or we want you to mow our, you know, whatever that it was, and basically figuring out how to do that. That was like the biggest learning curve. And then I think something that probably maybe amplified a little bit of the like maturity, I guess, or just life experience. And I'm not saying I'm mature by any means, but just life experience was <laughs> learning how to deal with 40 to 50 different somewhat high net worth individual, because at some point you got to have enough money to pay somebody else to mow your lawn. So there's kind of a threshold there, but learning right. how to like make all 40 or 50 of those different people happy, but yet still make money doing that was one of the most like, and I'm not saying I learned that at the time, but kind of reflecting back, it was one of the most amazing processes that I think has set me up pretty well today to figure out how to just deal with people or at least approach dealing with people. But the less philosophical approach to that was I could make more money mowing one lawn than I could make, you know, a shift at Wendy's or anything like that. So it's like, all right, let's keep doing that. Let's keep growing that. So by my sophomore year at I went to Hope College, which is in Western Michigan. By my sophomore year, we had 60 accounts and five or six employees, a couple part-times, a couple full-times. And the business, like it was a really good book of business, but I was going back and forth between Ann Arbor and Holland, which is about three hours. And finally I was, uh, so like the summer between my sophomore year going into my junior year, um, I like, finished classes a little bit early. So April, May, June, I was doing like 120 hours a week. And it was just nonstop, like up at 430 in bed by like midnight or one and just grinding. Oh and it was, geez. it was like the, the crazy thing about it though, is like, I didn't need caffeine. Like it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was exhausted. Like it was actually the most high, like it was a very high experience, which was amazing. And Finally, I got approached one day. I was at a brewery or like a, a, a diner downtown um, Celine where I was from. And one of the local lawn care company guys comes up to me and says, hey, I know you're managing this from a distance. And if you ever you know, want to sell your accounts, let me know. And I said, all right, well, let me buy a beer and let's keep talking about that. And I think like reflecting on that now, I realize I have, a, I think you mentioned Blueprint earlier. I'm a opportunistic person and I there's not much like there's not much I can't get excited about if there's an opportunity there. And so uh -huh. that like, he made an offer on the whole business right there. I called a buddy and who is like a property management owner. And I said, Hey, you know, walk me through this process. You know, what do you think about this? He turned around and said, uh, I think this is a great offer. I think you should take it, but I'm going to offer you this. So in the matter of like, no one, this is like some chubby fat kid who started a lawn care company, and made some <laughs> money to, uh, I had two offers on the business that were like really, really good money, like, like really good money for that. Still today, like it was an amazing experience, but, and I was like, all right, fine, done deal. Sold the whole thing. And that like three days later was done. And then wow. I guess that wow. was like the first taste. And that was like very much like God put that whole moment in my lap sort of experience. And then it was like, all right, well, I now have an appetite for what this looks like. And 
let's start another one. <laughs> that's that's that. So, so when I, you when you when you look back, because because do you remember when I said there's this that 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 little data point from third grade that somehow stuck in my brain? What is what is? Tell me about one of those little snapshots in your brain that you're like, why the fuck do of all the billions trillions of data that bombard my brain? Why is this ancient little photograph in there? Tell me one of those photographs that are in your old, old, oldest photo album. Man, these are the questions that I like to avoid, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're the editor. You can just cut it out. Exactly. (laughs) I I think there's two. One... Uh, one actually was from my dad and my dad has always said to me, you're going to rule the world someday. And for the better part of 22, I would say better part of, I'll I'll say 20 years. I thought it was the cheesiest, dumbest thing. It's like, dad, shut up. Um, (laughs) now I realize that like, if, like I have been gifted, I think, with, a, you know, just a desire to do good and help people that I've had enough people say that that's contagious. And then combine that with like a network of people who have been so amazing to help me out. I mean, this relationship, you've out of nothing in return been incredibly helpful to me in so many different avenues, right? from business to just having fun conversations to uh, like being on the, I mean, in so many different ways and there's Uh people like Steve Griffin and just tons of people like that. Like realizing that I really, if done well and used like, I don't know, for good, like I, I think I have an opportunity to have a pretty good impact and whatever that looks like. And that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be in the limelight. I think actually one of my greatest skills is using my network or publicity or whatever that is. And, putting other people in front who deserve to have their story shared like yours and like Steve's and like tons of others. So that I think was one that stuck with me. I think the other one, and I honestly don't remember who said it, but somebody once said, and it's always stuck with me that um, you're dangerous if you want to be. And that has been the sexiest thing I think anybody has ever said to me. Like, I, I don't know why that one hits so hard, but like that to me Hmm. is like, I wear that not in like dangerous and like a negative turn, although it could be taken that way. But like, I, I take that as like, man, I really could have an impact if I did it for good, I think. So I don't know. Is wow. that, does that touch so, on the question? Okay. <laughs> no, it definitely does. Totally. And that's the only thing you can ask is that, did you, did you nudge the needle a little bit in the positive direction? Not a lot. It's not a quantity game. It's a quality game. Did you nudge it a little bit for all of us? And that's it, right? And if it's one person, then you nudged it. The world is that much incrementally for sure, but it's, it's, it's more positive for you having been here, you know? And that's it. That's all I can ask for. That's all I can ask for myself is to, to not be a detriment, to not, you are the weakest link. I don't want to be that guy. It's just there's so much of interest in your story that um, 
I think others would find interesting because, and I, I, then I'll shut up, but your demographic, and, and, and I, I'm really reluctant to use, you know, generational nomenclature because I just think it's very dismissive and, and insulting. But having said that, I'm going to do it now. So people in their mid-20s, um, I, I just, I'm so intrigued by what is it like to know that you're getting, you're certainly not getting the best hand that you could be dealt in terms of climate and just general state of the world, right? I mean, we're, we're right now being led by people that are hell-bent on ignoring, let's just say, the, the climate change evidence. And so I'm just always intrigued by, like, it's going to be your generation that has to, like, oh, by the way, pull a Doug Flutie here, and that's all. That'd be great. Thanks. One Hail Mary pass. Is it too much to ask for? <laughs> so I'm just curious, what does that feel like? I mean, in addition to everything else of being a normal adult, somehow your generation is going to have to seriously step up to some amazing shit and bring an A game that nobody's ever seen. Are you ready for that, Matt Baxter? <laughs> I am going to lead us to the world's demise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is not what I signed up for way, 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 uh, way too above my pay grade. <laughs> um, so I think here's one thing about like the crossover between our gender. So majority of time I spend and actually throughout most of my life has been actually spent with older generations, meaning 40 to 60s age is typically who I like end up spending a lot of time with one because of like the lawn care Two, I mean, business now that's most of the people I interact with. I mean, that, that's just kind of always been the case. And, and so I think I have a different outlook because most of my high level conversations have actually been on probably that side of things. But then I look at like friends I went to school with and like good friends I have now who are, you know, my age and stuff like that. I think for one, our generation needs, like mine, I, I feel like I, you're, you're hip and young enough, I could call you part of ours, but my, uh, <laughs> my, <laughs> my generation needs to come to the conclusion that like everything the older generations have done was not intentionally to fuck us up. Like, I feel like there's some thing that needs to cause us to get over the fact that like the the world was not intentionally put this way for us to have a a tough go of things or us to struggle once we get past that then i think our generation can do some amazing things because what i run into is so many people my mid 20s age sort of are constantly trying to prove above us what was wrong or what was done incorrectly in in some amazing ways like environmental change is, is a, a, uh -huh, uh -huh. a perfect example of like, yes, we should probably look to improve that. Right. So there's definitely some good ways of that, but also there's like this almost constantly level of questioning, not in a curious sense, but in a challenging disrespectful sense all the time. And so I think okay. our generation, like, and this is all one, one opinion, two, from a dumb person, and three, like not, not anything that like I think should be written home about. But I just think that like the amazing social 
impact that our like my generation can have and like the overall interest in like the betterment of the world is like one of the most amazing concepts we just need to figure out how to do it over long term not in short sprints and not to prove the older generations wrong mm, interesting Interesting. So I don't know if any of that answers your question or not. but No, it, it does because it raises the prospect of culpability. It, it, statute of limitations probably is a better way to say it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. okay, fine. Granted, shouldn't have done that. Now what do we do going forward? And intensive criminality. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I know that's something that, you know, has relevance in the courtroom. So I, what's intriguing to me is the health of your perspective. So, you know, the cliche is glass half full or half empty. It doesn't make a fucking bit of difference. There's the amount of water in the glass that there is. Your perspective. Yeah. The damn glass is twice as big as it needs to be. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> the water isn't the question. It's how you choose to perceive it. And the fact that you perceive it as this isn't about culpability and blame. It's about the future. It is. You know, Alfred Adler said that humans are teleological. They are goal striving. The most painful thing you can do to human is remove their capacity to strive for a goal. So embedded in our genetics is, is the drive for evolution. And so what you're saying is, and this is what is so hopeful for me, is an old person who's going to need your generation to not only fix the climate, but also change my diapers, is you guys recognize that we can do this. We have the capacity to do this if we just get past the need to to say, you know, I blame you or I blame you. And that to me is, it's an oddly hopeful position to take because the need to blame, um, you know, goes out the window. There's no, there's no atheist in the foxhole, right? When, when the shit hits the fan, people can really have an amazing sense of focus. You know, when, you're, when your engine's on fire, there's a reason you flip to boldface because you really can focus when you know that you're about to crash. And so I just find it very comforting to know that your attitude isn't one of, oh, well, what the fuck? It's a good ride. Nero's fiddling. Rome is burning. Whatever. There's still the hope. Even as the submarine goes down, you're still trying to get the fucking generator to work. And that's awesome. Yeah. And maybe maybe it's too maybe it's an overly optimistic, but I just I think no, there's too much no. opportunity. How can you not be optimistic? It is it is a choice. It is truly a perspective choice. And so why wouldn't you choose the optimistic perspective, knowing that the other path sucks, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna walk around and think the glass is half empty. Well, great. Nobody wants to be around you. You're a downer, A. And B, you know, the amount of water is irrelevant. Your perspective is your choice. So, all right, um, we're going back to you now because uh, I know I know I know a uh, intelligence psychologist is going to find a way to not avoid 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 question asking. Right. <laughs> so you're in Napa now. So once you and your wife move out to remind me, what's your wife's name? Martha. Martha. Yep. Yep. So you and Martha, you're in Napa now. So what's life leading to you at this point? So it's interesting because it, it, California is is fascinating. I mean, we are we are the doppelganger. That's a negative. We are the the polar opposite. We are the counterbalance to you know our current our current occupant, um, our dear leader. 
And so part of it is really energizing and fun to know that you're surrounded by people who all share the same fundamental belief, you know, that, that healthcare is, is a right, not a privilege, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's an awesome thing. But the weird thing is like the epicenter, San Francisco, Matt, and I, I know you've been out there. The homelessness is, is mind boggling that that, that that much humanity is, is living like that on the doorsteps of the wealthiest people, you know, certainly in our country. And, and so it's just, it presents such a fascinating observation that, like, who comes up to Napa Valley to drink wine? People on vacation doing, like, a bucket list thing, or people flying up or, you know, driving their Lambos up from Marin County. And so you only see this amazing, rarefied slice of happy, affluent humanity. Okay. Um, um, we went to Portugal. Portugal is, you know, it's the very far end of Spain, but it's not Spain. How the hell can you be surrounded by Spain and not be Spain? Something about the Portuguese, their culture, it was so interesting that as the tip of Spain, they get and have been conquered and infiltrated and run over by 8,000 different cultures. And instead of fighting it and being worn down and overrun, they've absorbed a little bit of all these different cultures. So it's this amazing eclectic part of the world where it's certainly first world, it's certainly socialistic, and they've certainly got the amenities to justify being, you know, a place that, wow, this is an amazing example of what human, organized human effort is capable of. And they're uniquely Portuguese, and they're uniquely accommodating. They welcome everybody. It isn't like they've got these ridiculous walls built around them to keep the Spaniards out. We were there and we thought, Okay, so if this is, you know, you can go to like Scandahuvia and see all the great examples of what socialism would do. California is on its way, I believe, in that trajectory. And I think the thing like with the homelessness in San Francisco, I think it's one of the, like Hercules had 10 challenges. I think that's one of the challenges that we as progressives need to figure out, okay, we talk a good game. How actually do we do this? And that, when you ask what's it like to be in Northern California, dude. Come on. Weed is legal. I have, I grow copious amounts of ganja, to quote Rockstock. I mean, it's awesome. It's totally awesome. But I get back to my core premise. How the hell do we replicate this, this experience for other people? How do we get other people to find the equivalent of their, you know, Napa Valley, house in the valley kind of thing? If you could solve that, Matt, that would be super. Yeah, I'm working on it. Give me, give me a little bit of time. <laughs> right, well, you're distracted. So tell me about, uh, tell me about career-wise. So you, you get out to Napa, uh, you're stepping into sort of the wine side of things, but where are you at career-wise and, and kind of what's, what's, where's life taking you at this point? So it was really interesting because we started 3D. We got to 10 people. We started with 10 people, and it was just, you know, it was just a sweet spot. It was just, boom, we were on fire. It was awesome. Uh, that was 20, that was October of 2011. Um, I remember I was programming the success factors modules. And then 
we, it, we, we had more clients than we could deal with. We hired more consultants. We got to be 100, let's just say 100 employees. And it was such an example of how hard it is to run a company. Because, you know, basically, we, we just, we got too big. And so we had to let some people go. And, and the, the funny thing about the universe is it said, me and a few other people were the ones that were on the second riff. And somehow, I had a sense that it would be worth entertaining the idea of looking at the mothership, SAP. And it just was total serendipity that I had lined up a position with SAP two days, Matt, two days. And seriously, when I had lined up that position, remember, Brian was my friend from grad school. And so I'm like, holy shit, how do I tell Brian that I'm leaving 3D results because I just think we're a little bit bigger than we can financially sustain? Friday morning, I have a weekly check-in call with my manager, and Brian's on the call. Brian is never on my call. And there's an HR representative. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, this and just they, can't be good. Exactly. And Brian, he felt terrible. You know, he's like, hey, dude, I got to let you go, basically. And I, I, he felt so bad. And I felt so bad for him feeling bad. I was like, don't. Brian, seriously, dude, I got a job with SAP, man. It's all right. There is no perfect happiness. So it's SAP. It's awesome. The, the, the culture, the company, the mission, the social responsibility. I mean, I am genuinely proud to say I work at SAP. 92,000 people with a German mentality and a shitload of bureaucracy. Do I want to pull my hair out? Every day, every day, for sure. But, that you know, fine. I, it, you got five buckets in your life. At any point, one of them is going to need attention. Sometimes all five buckets are just right. And that's when you need to celebrate. Because at any point, one, two, three, God forbid, four buckets are out of whack, you know, and that's just life. That's just life. But we're somehow raised to think, with the media's got us thinking that life should just be about the highs, right? Well, if life is just about the highs, it's a fucking plane, right? If all you want are the mountain peaks and no valleys, guess what, dude? <laughs> that's called a plateau, and that, that is not the mountain peak. So it's like, yeah. You know, Carl Jung said, you got to drink the champagne in the valley, not at the mountaintop. I love it. I love it. So do you feel like, okay, given, given your reflection of uh, the Georgia move to Chicago, the marrying the woman, the uh, feeling like you're living life with an open mind to transitioning into today, do you feel like, the younger version of Carl would be thrilled at what Carl's doing now. Absolutely. Because it's like, I, 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 it's amazing. I, I seriously, seriously, Matt, I'm, I'm sitting here saying I, I would, I don't, I don't know how to, like, this is an amazing life. And I just feel an obligation to help other people get to not literally this experience, the same experience for them. You know what I mean? What do you think is the biggest thing holding people back from that? In like a, in a, in a broad paint, paint the, paint the large stroke of generalization. But like, what do you, what do you think is holding people back? 
unfortunately, I think there's a couple of big variables that are that are working against that. Um, and ironically, one of them is psychology. You know, an, there's there's an aspect of psychology that that stresses we are self-sufficient. You know, we the things you need are within you, and you are self-sufficient. Well, that's not true. We are a social being. We are strong only as we rely on and collaborate with others, right? So part of it is psychology saying, you just need to be, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Well, dude, I don't have legs. So your analogy sucks, right? So we've got to recognize that we work better together versus alone. The second piece is, there is an onslaught of messaging, explicit and implicit, where the, 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 everybody's living the perfect life and it's, they, they hop from mountaintop to mountaintop. And well, first of all, it's bullshit. But secondly, you, you, need, we've, you need the winter to have the summer. You need the changes of the seasons. Nothing, nothing in nature is a straight line. Everything is cyclical. And so to think that, I, uh, excuse me, I would just like all the good shit and none of the bad shit. <laughs> yeah, well, fucking get in line, dude, you know? And so I think that's the second piece. And the third piece is we've predicated our whole existence on a, on a value system. And Native Americans spent the predominance of their time not working, thinking, training, and not training, but like sharing stories. because. When they worked, okay, we got to get food, we got to build shelter, we got to, you know, set away supplies for the winter. And then the rest of the time was, was kind of more of a contemplative, philosophical nature or war making. And so we are so compressed on our time. And I was just listening to uh, the blog, Vox, on um, uh, flow thinking, flow thinking, um, Ezra Klein is box.com. Just look it up. So I was listening to that. And there's a woman on there who's a, a clinical psychologist, a child psychologist at Berkeley. The power of childhood is it provides a safe space to try on different things, to test theories, to learn, to explore in a safe space. And we remove that when it's suddenly, you know, this handler, this handler, you know, parent A is at work, parent B is at And so the shorter and more compressed the childhood is, the less the opportunity to find out the real capacity. And the downside is, in that capacity is our own evolution. That's how we evolve, right? This little being begins to differentiate themselves from the parent. And so the parent has to stay, and the child is like, I get, I get what you're saying, but I'm trying some shit out. In that trying shit out is how we evolve. You remove the child's ability to try shit out by filling it with, you know, okay, now you're going to piano, now you're going to soccer, now you're going to kung fu. Kids need to be kids. They need to fucking sit in the backyard and play in a sandbox, hang out with their friends. And that's our, as a species, evolution. We remove that at our own peril. Those three things, I think, are driving this, this it's a significant barrier to, to helping us share the experience of what life can be like. That was like an upside down chocolate fudge cake that was so dense and there's so many calories in there. You probably just want to lick it. Just lick it. 
<laughs> that was uh, TM that whole paragraph sort of thing. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. So what's the what's the Carl's first step towards the circumstantial? Okay, so I totally agree that some of this is like variable in some people's circumstance or environment or stuff like that, but for the most part, I feel like a lot of people just kind of complain to complain, right? So what would you say is Carl's advice to the distressed person that just needs a little nudge in the right direction? Um, so the distressed person, are they looking for hope and aspiration? Or is it a person who's got a good hand and wants to exhibit a little bit more benevolence? How are you distressed? Are you distressed by being in a one-down power situation? Or are you distressed by being in a one-up power, but you don't know what to do? One-down. So, one-down. That's challenging. Um, so, Victor Frankl the guy that wrote Man's Search for Meaning, um, went through a concentration, no, like a, not a concentration camp, he went through a, a death camp, um, but he survived. He was a, a medical doctor and he survived. He was a psychiatrist at the time and he survived and he wrote these little observations on tiny pieces of paper that he kept inside of his jacket. And he real, and then when he got out, he of course came up with a theory called logotherapy um, and, he, and he taught it in Austria um, after the war. But the premise is man needs something to live for and then something to live by. And so the example he would use when he was in the concentration camp is that the people that survived were the ones that had something to live for, let's say the kids. But then what do I live by day to day to get me to the longer term goal? And so define what are you living for and then break it down into bite-sized pieces. What am I living by? I live by, I live by uh, Micah six eight, which is a chapter in the Bible. I live by the philosophy behind Micah six eight, and I'm intentionally not saying what it is because I want people to look that up. Now you'll probably edit this point, but Micah six eight basically says, "Be just, be merciful, and walk humbly with your God." Now, if you don't believe in God, that's fine then the, the point is be just, be merciful, and be humble. And so that's something to live by while you are moving towards the thing you're living for. So I guess in a super long-winded, I hope you had a really long escalator ride, that is what I would say is advice for people in a one-down differential. Um, we can include this or not. Are you? Uh, is faith a part of your life? Uh, raised Catholic, but... So it's interesting about faith. I think for sure there's something, this isn't an accident. I mean, this is not an accident. I think what we choose to call God, Allah, Buddha, is a, is a, it's a way for us to get our brains around something that I don't think we are capable of or meant to get our brains around. So it's a transitional object and it certainly works, right? But there is there is something clearly at work here. And 
I'm totally cool with not knowing what that software is because fine, I'm not meant to know it right now. And it's like, if I look up and I see all of a sudden the moon disappears or the sun disappears, I don't think it's because my neighbor's a bad person and I'm going to go kill him. I just think, huh, you know, wow. I don't know it's a, you know, eclipse, but at the time I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I have, we have the knowledge to say there's shit we don't know. The very fact that we can't explain what's at the edge of the universe means that, okay, I don't know. Fine. But that's, that's the beauty of it. So yeah, there's something going on way bigger than I'm supposed to understand. So my dissertation was the importance of spirituality in the workplace. And many, many of my colleagues at that time were writing these freaking like 300 page, just esoteric shit that nobody was going to read. I just remember saying to myself, fuck, I mean, all that work to just sit in a library someplace that you can't even get in the public library. Like, fuck that. I want, if I'm doing this work, I want it to at least have a meaning. And I've always been struck right after college, I had to get a job to fill before the military I started. And so I was, I was on an assembly line and we were, they made just these shitty vinyl purses. And so my job was, you know, the vinyl purse would come by, I'd shove it full of brown paper and then I'd put it in the box. And that was what I did all freaking day is I'd shove brown paper in a shitty vinyl purse and put it in the box. And I remember thinking, as I thought, there, there were people that had done that for decades at this place. It was a small shop in New Hampshire. And, it, you know, they would just, you know, they'd get manufacturing jobs and they'd bid them out. And, they'd, you know, and I just thought, how do these people do that? They must find a way to, to make this bigger than themselves. And I've always been impressed. By the capacity, so the, you know that concept behind flow, where it's that that sweet spot between feeling overwhelmed and feeling bored. So you're right in the zone where you're like, oh fucking shit, I think I can do this. No, I can't. Yes, I can. I can do this. Right where you're just challenged. There's no way, Matt, putting brown paper in a vinyl purse. I don't care who you are, is 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 going to challenge you. But what I discovered was that. People did find a challenge. They made it a way to challenge themselves. Can I get, you know, two pieces? Can I get 18 purses in an hour? Can I get 30 purses? Can I get that case filled before my lunch break? And so setting these challenges, and it just was so interesting that it reinforced Adler's perspective that we are so inherently goal striving that to remove that is, is it's just, it's as painful a process as a physical pain. And that was behind the dissertation where, it, it, okay, so my last manufacturing job was we made catalogs, the J, like J Crew. Um, so these things would fly by and then there's these machines that would cut the paper, staple it and bend it over. Well, those machines are only gonna work to the limits of the gearing and, and the friction in those gears, right? They're not gonna go any faster than the physics. Humans will get you three out of one in one. So somewhere in there is this ability to put paper in a vinyl purse and make it meaningful. Well, shit, that's spirituality. I don't care what you call it. Your ability to transform the thing you do from mundane reality into something aspirational, that's spirituality. You tap into that. 
And that is transformative. So somewhere in there was, was the beauty of the software that Success Factors has, is it takes a thing and it, it presents the tools that you need to have the magic happen with your employees. The problem clients run into is they think that's all they need. Hammers never pound nails without a human. It's a hell of a lot easier to have a hammer. But if you're trying to do something, you still need the human element. And so that's where I find the real challenge is bridging the gap between, oh, please, dear God, maybe this software will mean I don't have to talk to my employees and tell them they're doing a mediocre job. No, dude, if they're doing a mediocre job, you got to tell them. And then you got to help them understand what the path forward is. And that, to me, is where the real fun is in this work of HCM. So to the person who is looking at uh, shoving a bunch of shit in a brown paper bag and (laughs) calling that exactly what it is, who doesn't have goal setting or goal orientation about that and looks at this and just hates their life and they're miserable because of that, to then go move on to something else there's a decent chance they might look at the volume two of shoving shit into a brown paper bag <laughs> at the next job and say it pays a little bit better and it's a little bit more glorified, but it's not any different, right? So do you think people are better off spending the time to look at that brown paper bag job and say, how can I find myself? Um, how how can I create purpose in this? Mm, or do you think mm. somebody's better off spending more time trying to find a glimmer of hope in a next step up or something else? I I, I guess yeah who, yeah yeah the, the the audience I'm specifically speaking to right now are the my generation of nine month. Uh, job hoppers who Mm -hmm. are trying so like talented people don't have a ton of experience need some experience but like don't like they just can't get settled into something and so to them it's like and wow did we do a damn good job of bringing this back full circle to the job seeking (laughs) side of things so kudos to us but i mean kudos to you man well i don't know about this in all reality i mean i i think the, the the true question is like should that person spend more time on themselves trying to figure out like, Hey, how do I see value and joy in this and purpose or whatever? Or do you think that person's better off jumping to something that they might get a, a, a spark from? You know, damn, excellent question. So I think it depends on the circumstances you find yourself in. For instance, if your circumstances are, you need this job, and you don't have the luxury right now of changing, then that becomes the non-variable. And so then you have to look at the other four buckets in your life that are variables that you can adjust because this one can't change. If you have the luxury, though, of changing this and knowing that humans are inherently goal-striving, you're setting yourself up for disappointment if you don't at least plot out a path forward. I'm very reluctant to say, then act on that path. Because, and and the only reason I'm reluctant is because I have never done that. 
So I can't espouse a path that I have never tried. My path through life has truly, truly been one of right place, right time, um, amazing, you know, home life. All, it was like the perfect, the opposite of the perfect storm. It was the perfect blessing in, in a, a secular way. And so, non-secular way. Um, I always get those two messed up. Anyway, in a non-religious way, I'm very, very blessed. And I want to share that. And so for people that feel like, huh, um, this job sucks. First question I would ask is, do you have the, the ability to change it? Uh, no, you know, my partner's in the hospital and I've got four people that are relying on me for this income. Okay, fine. Let's figure out how we find enjoyment and purpose in this job of putting brown paper in a vinyl purse. But if you're putting brown paper in a vinyl purse and you're like, man, I could be doing more. All right, let's do more. Because there's an obligation. You weren't put here to put brown paper in a vinyl purse unless you were. And if you're, if the very fact you're questioning that means you at least need to try. You may come back and say, hey, you know what? There were some things that were good about this job that I didn't see. Predictability, steady paycheck, I like my colleagues, it's a short commute. There's so many variables where you can emphasize that aspect of happiness that brings to life. But, you know, it, it depends on your personal situation. At no point, though, do you not have people that are willing to help you. And that, I think, and I keep thinking of that woman who, you know, and I have my picture in the goddamn resume in the envelope, or, or that woman that, um, you mentioned a woman that helped you out. And it's like, if you're feeling that this is just me being Sisyphus pushing this rock up a hill, well, you know what? I guarantee, like you've discovered with blogging, don't ask people for a yes, no, like, hey, do you have a job? Nobody wants to be the asshole that says, no, I don't. What would you advise me? Oh, I will advise you all day long, dude. And especially if you buy me lunch, fuck, I'll advise you for the hour too. And so you're not alone and you don't have to invent the wheel. Somebody has been there and has probably at least got an easier or shorter or more expeditious path forward. But you're not alone is the takeaway. I love it. I love it. It reminds me, God, this is going to sound really bad, but um, it reminds me of the moment where you realize that you can see the girlfriend again so you don't have to spend all night in her room before her parents get up. Um, this is, <laughs> is that this your point? Is that is that your point? Where I'm saying I'm done? <laughs> no, it just reminds me. I remember feeling like, God, I can't. What was it? Chris Cunning? Oh, please, we're not recording this. Holy shit! Yeah. Um, God, it was. I, it was the summer in the academy. The one summer I had before I was kicked out. I was home, and this girl I'd always wanted to date. We somehow ended up getting together, and I was so reluctant to give it up that I stayed out till 5 a.m., and my mom had to work the next day, and I had her car. It was just a totally douchebag thing to do, but I, I just, I was so afraid that if it ended, it would be over, and then I just dawned on me like, dude, you got the whole summer. You will be able to see her tomorrow night. <laughs> it's crazy. And that's kind of like, because there's so many different aspects of the talent acquisition process that I think has been focused 
on the on the blocking and the tackling and the nuts and the bolts and it misses the it, it misses the magic, right? So one of the things about being a psychologist is there's a lot of frustrated medical doctors who are psychologists. And the, the only arguments I would have in grad school was around the recognition that this isn't science. It is science and magic. And part of this is a, a spiritual magical component in the relationship, like shamans. Like shamans in, in indigenous cultures, there is a healing component to being a psychologist that isn't science-based. And so that is so relevant to the talent acquisition process that it isn't just about, you know, CRM and tracking your candidates and carousels for their, their CVs. There's also this, this kind of spiritual, magical piece. And, and I learned that in the retained search world where I was about to ask people to move them and their families for these jobs. Because at retained search level, you know, obviously it's a significant salary to warrant a retained search. And so it really became incumbent on me to make sure that I wasn't hustling for my, my commission check on the retained search and then saying, you and your family are going to be totally fish out of waters here as, you know, Indians in Peachhead or Bucktown or Peachhead or wherever the hell it was in Atlanta, that, you know, you just can't do that. And so I think the talent acquisition process, there's so much there for you and I to explore. Um, and it's really interesting to me. So I think you, from your perspective, would be able to bring some really interesting observations for us to explore with a, with a clinical perspective on the talent acquisition process. Yeah, I'd <clears throat> I'd love to. I mean, what yeah, would, I think that'd be cool. What would that look like? Um, or is that thoughts for another time? Well, I think there's got to be like an organizing structure or a theme. Like, um, I don't even know what that would be. But what are the? We need to define the skeleton before we do the fun stuff of like adding the muscle and the skin and the eye color. We gotta we gotta define the skeleton. So what what aspect of your audience interests would we want to address? Because to me, this is all about clinical psychology. Humans, you got you got twenty four hours. Eight of them should be sleeping. Eight of them are at work. That means you get eight hours for yourself. So those eight hours at work are just as important as the eight hours for yourself. We have to make sure that those eight hours at work are as meaningful and as engaging, not not for any other reason, not to make money, but because that person goes home and interacts with a family, a shitty day at work means a shitty day for the rest of that family. An awesome day at work means an awesome day for the rest of that family. And so I I think the work impact is so so significant to just overall everybody talks about health and well being. Shit, man. I would see 20 patients a week. Most of them, well, it was three big themes, right? Money, sex, and, and work. And so if you address work by addressing change management and impact 10,000 employees, Matt, I saw 20 patients a week. So I can, I can impact 10,000 people's lives with the change management rollout of, of performance and goals. Oh, my God. I mean... 
ROI, return on impact is worth it. So yeah, I think there's so much to explore. I don't know what the skeleton is. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that even looks like. Yeah, Carl. So I'll, I'll take that to the next level. So <clears throat> I have through starting this business, raising capital, getting in front of people I have no business of being like doing business with <laughs> and, and just like, I, I, I mean that, and that's not a self-deprecating humor. That's actually like, holy shit, this is dope. Like that's like, this is just unreal. So many people, like I can probably count on my hands the number of people who I feel like they feel like they've arrived at a good place in life. And that's what's really become interesting to me is even some of the most high profile people who I, for whatever reason, can get access to are still looking for something else or looking for something the next stage or looking for, and I think, and this is definitely on the hypothesis side, I think half of that is fueled by I could never be the person who could do that. And the other half of that is fueled by regret of I had an opportunity to do that and I didn't. And it's this really weird, like, I'm talking like high, high profile people and people who you would look at from the outside and you're thinking, damn, you were doing all the right things. And yet so many of them are looking for something else career wise. And I'll, 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 I say all this all like definitely in the context of career focus and you as a psychologist would probably look at and say, what other parts of your life are you missing? Which I think is valid too. But like, <laughs> I, I would say that so many people, like you look at LinkedIn, everybody's profile looks amazing. I would hedge a bet that 99% of those people are not happy or looking for something else. And that to me is... an opportunity, a problem. And also like, I mean, shit, I can't like that. I, that's where I want to like start writing books. I want to start speaking. I want to start like, that's, I mean, my LinkedIn posts are dedicated towards like trying to solve some of that stuff. But so many people are like just one step away from like, I don't know doing the, doing the shit you and I are doing where it's like, we don't have it figured out, but we at least know we're on the right path. And I, that's where I, I don't know how to like quantify that metric focus that, or like make that a tangible, not a soft fluffy thing, but uh -huh. I don't know. No, I, I totally get what you're saying. You know, ah, oh man, and I know, I, no, I don't know actually what it's like to be you starting, you know, funding a company, but if you can grab a book called Tribe, it's a small book. It's, it's a quick read. You'll read it in a night. It's called Tribe. It's written by Sebastian Younger. He's a wartime journalist, and I, I'm not going to say any more than that because I won't do it justice, but you will for sure read it in one night, and it's it speaks to 
what what binds us as a tribe. We are tribal. That's how we survive. And in that pursuit, in that pursuit of existence versus happiness, I think is somehow we've 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 gotten a little confused along the way. You know when you see a fish in the stream, you know as someone who's been outdoors, if you grab where the fish looks to be, it's already going to miss because of parallax. It's the same in our lives where happiness isn't the goal. It's the byproduct of a good life. And so many people believe that happiness is the fish and they see it and they want to grab it. And what they don't know is they're already going to miss it. And so how to explain you don't you don't shoot for happiness. You shoot for engagement in your life, of which happiness then becomes a byproduct, which you celebrate when you experience because you don't experience it all the time. And so that piece is so Matt, I think especially given our two very different perspectives, the natural tension and, and tension isn't a negative in our dynamic, but the natural tension between both the the the, the generational difference, the, the age difference, but also the, the career difference. You are very much a, a initiator. I am a supporter for, or any of the other personality assessments out there. I am the person that thrives as the vice president. I thrive making you look good. And I heard you say that you do the same thing, but the fascinating thing is you've You've recognized that heavy is the head that wears the crown, and you still choose to wear that crown. I've recognized heavy is the head that wears the crown, and I say, no, I'm going to help you wear the crown. <laughs> in, that, in that dynamic, though, I think it's something very interesting for people to see where they fit in their, in their contribution as a, as, a, as a, you know, I hate to say professional, but as a how you get your paycheck, you know, it applies to masons, it applies to plumbers, and it applies to surgeons as well as, you know, C3. So, yeah, I think, I think the, the inherent and natural and positive tension between you and I and our perspectives, I think can bring a lot of fruit to an audience that is interested in 8,000 different ways to the mountaintop, each one has its own pluses and minuses. And you and I are just simply talking about all the different ways to get to the, the same mountaintop. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. So I am perfectly on board with picking your brain and seeing how a 25-year-old navigates this world because, son, I'm going to need my diapers changed. And <laughs> fortunately for you... <laughs> You're the youngest person I know. <laughs> <laughs> love that, love that. And that's 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 what my dad always says when I'm uh, when I'm going and I'm uh, being pushed in the stroller. You uh, you get to deal with me, and I said, yeah, you better you better be ready to have a shitty ass the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I um, I so the the I. Don't have any problem, and I'll, I'll 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 suggest this right out the gate. 
I don't have any problem being in the limelight. I don't want to be known for being in the limelight. I think that's like a big, like, mm, I'll let the psychologist and you digest that however you'd like. I, <laughs> I have no problem being the risk taker, being the person who is the first step forward knowing that 99% of the time I'm going to be wrong, but I'm going to do it a hundred times and know that the one time it's going to be right is going to pay dividends to everybody, not necessarily financially, but like I have right, no, right. I, I have no problem having an app. Like I have an appetite for that. In fact, I get uh, way too bored if I don't have that. One of the biggest things I think maybe self-conscious and maybe like deep rooted fear is that like, I don't want to be known for I'm doing this for me. Like I've kind of already gotten to the point where like I I'm self-fulfilled, not, not entirely, but like I'm on a yeah, path yeah. that I feel like I, I, I have a pretty good sense of what some of that feels like. And I feel good about that, but I don't want this. Okay. And so that's where I'm like at a really unique spot of trying to sort some of the stuff out of like, I probably err on the side of being overly self-conscious of like not sharing my story or not sharing stuff that I probably should be. Like I recognize some of that, but so all that to say the being the first step forward, the risk taker, the wearing the heavy crown, I, I I'm good with that, content with that, comfortable with that. So I'm totally in. Do you, However, do you think? Do you think it's a generational thing, right? So, so I think, uh, I, I, I think a fitting label for my generation would be, you know, shut up and cash your paycheck. And I think for your generation, and I hate to use these broad brushstrokes, but I think for your generation, it's more, you're more comfortable maintaining expectations on the relationship of employer-employee. Whereas I think my generation is, we're still kind of like, holy fucking shit, I got a job, dude. Shut the fuck up. Keep your head down. Cash that paycheck and go fishing on the weekend. And, you know, I saw that at Tenneco when I was a team developer where we would ask, how do we make more of these styrofoam clamshells? And the guys that ran the extrusion line, fuck, they knew every trick of how to get more clamshells out of these piles of styrofoam. And they would just check their brain at the door. And it's not that they wouldn't contribute, but it was kind of like, man, whatever. This is, this puts money in the bank so I can buy a bass boat and live in a, you know, a nice house and go fishing on the weekends and camping on the, you know, summer holiday. And I'm not in any way judging that, but I just think, your generation is showing an, the arc of justice bends, but it bends slowly towards, towards justice. And so I think your generation is like, well, you're not going to fucking pick on somebody for their orientation. Of course, you're going to give equal rights based on regardless of gender. I mean, it's just like your threshold for bullshit is higher than, than ours was. And I, I'm so intrigued by how that plays out in the workplace, right? Where my motivators, I mean, for my generation, are like, dude, 
I just need to keep contributing to Social Security because I'm getting ready to retire. Whereas you guys have a much higher threshold to risk and, and an expectation of, no, man, how am I doing? Tell me how I do this. Give me feedback. And I just think that is fascinating. Fascinating. Imagine if you're a 60-year-old recruiter and you're trying to find, you know, fresh out of college, you know, campus recruiting drive. I mean, that is just a fascinating, like, opera we're going to watch play out. Or maybe not. Uh, no, I, I'm tracking with you up into the point where appetite for risk, I think. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Because that's just a projection of mine where I think because you're younger, you're just more comfortable with risk. But actually, I, I have yeah. nothing to base that on. So go. Don't please. Well, well, no, I, I, just from what I've seen, I think we actually have a very – now. This is not uh, this statement is not in comparison to any other generation, but I actually don't mm-hmm. feel like it's a risk seeking generation at all. From wow, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think the. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> huh. Yeah, and so I think there's just that's a not natural... that's not gospel by that's not gospel by any means, but I don't I don't think it is. Like I think. In fact, like the the fact that you are not a younger generation person taking risks shows that not only are you not a part of a risk seeking generation, but you're actually kind of risk averse. Like, yeah. I actually think there's a pretty heavily, like, if you kind of think about, I mean, almost think about it in the context of like wealth, not that like my generation is sort of a gen to borderline gen three of wealth, meaning a large majority of my demographic of people in some way, shape or form probably had some form of their college at least helped out with. And so, so much of our cooped upness is trying not to lose what was given to us. And so I, I think that's like a little bit that's more like maybe thirties, maybe a little bit older. And then I think we're sort of the gen three. That's not quite the end up in rehab with a bunch of drug problems, but I think it's a, (laughs) I think it's a challenge and question why it was done the way it was done before from a demographic of people who were risk averse because they were sort of trying to maintain stuff. So I think about it like Gen 1 was the gen that made a ton of money, right? Gen 2 was the mm-hmm. Gen 2 is the we're not going to lose it, we're going to maintain it, so we're going to do what we were told. Gen 3 was the well, why the hell did you do it that way? That doesn't make any sense. We're going to do it our own way. And so I think we're like just starting to get into that, but I don't think that necessarily it, I don't know. I don't think that necessarily yields like a ri- Maybe it does. Maybe I totally just contradicted myself and actually just said that, like, we created a totally risk-seeking. I don't know. No, but I think, I think on that exploration that you're going through, I think it's, it's important for my generation to not impose either rose-colored lenses 
Like, oh, Matt, what you're going through is so awesome. Yeah, maybe it was awesome in the 80s, you know, when Ron Reagan was dumping a billion dollars into the government and military. But it's so important to recognize that this is your experience. And so my experience is mine. And maybe there's some foundational relevance between the two pads. But I, I just, I'm so intrigued by... I think of Ezra Klein, and I'm I'm a little obsessed right now. You got to listen to Vox.com. Ezra Klein, he has a 14 month old, uh, no, 14 week old, and he looks at this child, and he's saying, and he says it on his blog. He says, "I'm so intrigued by what is this child's perception of the world around him," and I think that's a risky position for my generation to be in with with your generation because. It's so easy to project all of our shit, good or bad. And it's so hard to let you have your journey and just simply say, you know, you can borrow my flashlight. I don't know if it's going to help. Because it's, it's truly, it's, a, it's not even apples and oranges, your world versus my world. And yet, there's still fruit. Whoa, man, there's a lot there. I just yeah. told you fruit. Yeah, there's a there there's a lot there. And and to to be honest, that's like I've sort of tripped into this. So I'm not going to say I intentionally found this, but the greatest board of directors, mentors, advisors are the how old are you? Uh 57. So for me, it's the 55 through 70-year-olds who are high intellect, still interested in being a part of what's happening, that are wise in the personal sense that no matter how far technology progresses, it's still driven by people who have to make decisions and have a life, and people who are willing to say, I trust you of the direction you're going to go. And I trust that you're going to figure it out no matter what. And we're behind you. And, and so in, in good, bad, or indifferent, where I think I've gotten really lucky to progress things is having investors, mentors, and advisors in that capacity of people who say, you know, Hey, we're going to pour into you. And so that to me has been hands down the most valuable asset is like kind of borderline the semi-retired person who's smart, had a successful career, knows that they don't necessarily know everything that's going on, but also has like a pretty decent pulse of where the business world, you know, was or is like on their way out. That to me uh-huh. has been, I think that's a really big untapped industry for my generation that I think in all reality, I think I'm probably, I I don't think there's many people who've tapped into that because I think we think old people don't know much. (laughs) Exactly. And Matt, you've touched on something that I actually would like to spend a blog talking about is our relationship with the, with the aged, the elderly, whatever the the, the non pejorative word is, because here's the point. As I'm in my late 50s, I realize I don't have 
So um, let me back up. Stages of adult development are basically chunked into 30-year blocks of time. And this is empirical. It's not anecdotal. So 30-year blocks of time where the way we move through it is uh, like, so from 20 to 30, I mean, from 20 to 50, that's 30 years. So somewhere in your 50s, you start doing this kind of, you look back, you, you consolidate your lessons learned, um, and you get ready for the next 30 years, right? So from 50 to 80. The challenge is you've laid the foundation to have a mentor into your 80s. My generation didn't do that because, well, first of all, people that are 30 years older than me, you know, back then smoking was considered to be a good thing and there was World War II, so they're all dead or dying of lung cancer. You're in a position now, 30 years from now, you'll be my age, I'll be 80, and I'll be able to reach back and say, hey, get ready. Here's the shit you're going to experience in your next 30 years. At 80, I then would need a mentor who's 110 to say, dude, get ready. Between 80 and 90, 90 to 100, 100 to 110. What happens is this time compression thing. So when I think of myself at 57, and I think of my father-in-law, who's 89, he's 32 years older than me. He seems as far removed from me as if I saw a fucking dinosaur in my backyard. It's like, <laughs> what on earth do I have in common with this guy? And yet, he's only 30 years older than me. Matt, I have a memory. 30 years ago, oh, I know exactly what I was doing. I know exactly what I was doing because I was your age. And so you are laying the seeds to have a, a, um, a flashlight available to you. You've, you've staged your resources as if you're a spelunker and you're insane. So you've, you've hung these oxygen tanks in a flashlight in 30 year stages. And that is one of the most profound secrets. And as I sit here, I'm like, I don't know any 80 year olds except for my father-in-law who's insane. And so this process that you're doing now, I think is fundamentally a game changer for your generation is to connect someone who's 30 years older, because recognizing adult development moves in 30-year chunks, you're going to be in your 50s where you're going to do your first kind of retrospective, like, all right, how'd I do? From 20 to 30, right? Chapter one, how did I do? Because you're then going to do this again in your 80s. You know, knock on wood, you live that long. You're going to look back. Okay, 80s to 50s, how did I do? And you're getting ready for that last stage, because at that point, we'll have the capacity, I think 100 becomes the next 80. And so, Think about the amount of time you have left, Matt. It is mind-blowing what you could do or accomplish. Because between you and me, it's 30 years. And to me, that just seems like, holy shit, dude. 30 years ago? That seems... That's all, it's just amazing. And I'm going to do this all over again, and I still won't be as old as my father-in-law, who ran a company and made a fucking millions of dollars selling it. And I'm like, damn, there's a lot of time we have on this planet. What the fuck are we doing with it? And we do it in eight-hour chunks. Because eight hours of it is sleeping. And eight hours of it is work. What? Because, you know, say what you will, you know, um, William Buffett or Branson, they still only have 24 hours in a day. How the fuck do they get? How the fuck do you start a, a, an album and an airline and – hang out with Barack Obama, you still only have 24 hours a day. How the fuck are you doing that? 
somewhere in there is that is that thing that you and I can explore. I don't know if we get the answers. You start an airline, I'm probably going to, you know, take you to patent court. But I just think <laughs> none of us are as smart as all of us. Do you know um, Do you know Russ Reynolds Associates or RSR Partners? Oh, RSR, I've heard of. How would I have heard of RSR? What do they do? So it's both of them are executive search and Russ Reynolds. Um, he's sort of the godfather of executive search. I mean, that was started 30 or 40 years ago. So he's, I think, mid-80s now. And when I was on the East Coast, I, I spent some time with him. I mean, he's he was the head of the uh, Bush administration financial committee. He's um, spoken at the White House a bunch of times. I mean, he has placed, I think, more CEOs and C-suite level people than any other executive search firm in the planet. Just a very, oh, very high, high caliber person. So <clears throat> long story short, through Hope, this college I went to, there's an alumni who is a pastor out in Greenwich, Connecticut, who introduced me to Russ. Russ and I spent some time together. And... <clears throat> um, we did it two years ago, and then actually two weeks ago, I we had a meeting, and one of the things he said to me is, "Be be kind to old men," and he kind of looked at me and he smiled, and I, <laughs> I said, "I got to be honest, I'm not sure what you mean by that, uh, but I, I, I mean, I, I think that makes sense." But like we dive, and he said, "Old men are wise; they're talented." they want to help and they're lonely. And <laughs> like, I, I, I realized that like, a, he's probably totally like, like that's his way of admitting all that, um, which is great. But also like realizing like there is a huge demographic of like, I, I don't know. I, I think of talented people that aren't looked actually highly upon anymore because of the mm -hmm, way things are mm -hmm. going that I think yeah, there's yeah. so much wisdom and capacity to explore that I, I, I don't know. I, Oh my I God, think dude, you are, this is one of, so in Yontville, which is like 10 miles up the road from me in Yontville is the largest, the biggest veterans home in America is in Yontville, 10 miles away from me, right? This, this, this veteran's home um, has, has its own golf course, has its own minor league baseball team, double A. Um, it is an amazing resource. And you know what I think about? I think about in this Yontville, there are, I don't know, 1,200 vets um, that are living there, men and women, imagine the memories and the pictures and the stories that are dying every single day from these people who just think about World War II. All the, assuming there's any left, because they're all in their 90s now. But let's just say the Vietnam stories, you know, when it first started, when we took it over from the French with Kennedy. I mean, these stories are there, these pictures, these memories, these lessons, and, and, and they disappear when they die. So, yeah, they're, there is an almost an obligation for our natural 
this is a natural treasure. This is like, this is like Fort Knox. I mean, and we're just letting it just die, just disappear, you know? So yeah, yeah, old men are lonely, but all that accumulated wisdom, I mean, just, holy shit, shame on us for letting that just, it's like watching a library burn, you know, and these guys die and these gals die. You are definitely, you are definitely the initiator, um, which is exciting for people like me that have ideas but don't know how to translate them into actionable steps. The benefit is I'm not really tied to making a ton of money. So I just want to see my ideas get traction and you seem to generate traction. You're like, you're like Pirelli. You generate traction and you're, you're on my Porsche. So I think I have some ideas that'd be interesting to see how they fit into a bigger conversation around where a competitive wedge is going. Just so, off some ideas. so for a uh, research-based analytical psychology mind that you have, I am your guy to share dumb, not thought out ideas with that can be <laughs> right off the cusp and as drawn out within crayon on a napkin as it gets. So don't feel like when you present something to me, it has to be good or well thought out. You're like that. You're like the crazy secret tool that gets shit done that translates kind of like this idealized state into actionable bite-sized steps. So, all right. So I covered my upstairs office with a chart paper, and I came out with an idea that I someday will share with you. Hopefully for you to poke holes in so I can then put it to bed. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Uh, yeah. Well, no, the, I, the best I, part about this is actually you're the you're the actual uh, next step guy, but I'm the you shoot the idea to me. I'll put it into a here's what we could do with it, and then you take it back to a here's how we do that, <laughs> and it's a perfect back yeah. and forth. <laughs> because if your dad's got seventy acres and he's he's seriously interested in pursuing some kind of a hemp production, because uh, hemp, you know, now it's totally cool. Nobody's concerned about hemp. No THC in hemp. But CBD is blowing up the market. Um, yeah, I, but my idea is a different one. About It's about tiny homes and veterans learning how to build tiny homes as a way of healing PTSD and then going out and teaching other vets. Um, anyway, Matt, you are a catalyst for creative thinking, and so I think this is contagious. Not like Ebola, but in a good way. Uh, yeah, let's do it again. I love it. Uh, thanks. You are not for... Ebola, so that's, that's <laughs> thank you for not uh, Ebola. That was the best validation that I needed, and uh, I feel like I can. Go, I can. I feel like I can sleep well tonight. So <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, well, the well, best uh, three hours I've spent in a while. So thank exactly. you. On a, on a serious note, thanks a ton for being on the show. And this is my first time doing a two-hour post or plus episode. So this is uh, this is good. I uh, can't wait to send this to the, 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 the <laughs> to Rob who edits it, and he's gonna be he's gonna love this. 
Yeah, wait, wait till you see his invoice. Good luck. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> cool. Carl, Bye, thank man. you so much. Thanks for asking. Love you. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> see ya. All right, ciao.